Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, we're taking a break from requests this week because we decided to do a tribute episode. Just a little while ago, the famous, very, very, very prolific actor Ian Holm died. So as is usual, when a famous actor dies, we look back and say, ah, did, did he or she do any horror movies? And it turns out Ian Holm did a couple horror movies, one of which very, 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 very familiar to all of us, 1979's Alien, actually starring a bevy of famous performers or performers who would go on to be famous and uh, directed by Ridley Scott, a fantastic director in one of his very first feature films that he has directed. So uh, this movie sent a whole bunch of people off to stardom, including its star Sigourney Weaver. So we're going to have a lot a lot to talk about with this movie. Craig and I, as you probably well know, shy away a little bit from the more iconic and popular horror movies because, as we often say, what can we say about this movie that can't already be said? And there are a ton of things to say about this movie, which we will definitely not be able to cram into one-hour podcast. But be that as it may, uh, it's worth talking about just to memorialize Ian Holm and his fantastic performance in this. I don't know, Craig. Uh, I went into this movie thinking I'd probably seen it a dozen times. And then I realized that what I had seen a dozen times was its sequel, Aliens which um, is a lot more action-packed and uh, I, arguably more iconic than this movie itself. But as I watched it, I figured maybe I've seen it once or twice, and I hadn't seen this in a while. And I was super happy to be watching this this time around on a gigantic screen in my living room, in the dark, alone, uh, which I felt like uh, is the perfect atmosphere to watch it, and was quite taken by just the severe atmosphere and the dread apparent in this movie and that stirred my memory reminded me why i liked it so much so um yeah very happy to revisit this movie how about you craig what's your history with it very similar to yours uh for whatever reason i grew up watching aliens uh the sequel um, it was just one of those things where it was on a VHS tape at my house. My dad must have taped it on cable or uh, dubbed a tape or something, but we had it, and it was one of the ones that I popped in a lot. But like you, um, I didn't watch the original as often, and I didn't see the original until well after I had seen uh, the sequel, the first sequel. Um and I agree with your assessment entirely. Uh, Aliens is far more action-packed. It's on a larger scale, as implied by the titles. In this film, there's really only uh, one um, alien that they have to deal with, whereas there's a whole bevy of them in the sequel. And like you said, even though the sequel is perhaps more action-packed, revisiting this movie was just very impressed um, at how much I enjoyed it and how good it was, especially considering the fact that I always take notes, more notes than is necessary, really, on plot details. And I didn't take nearly as many notes this time around as I usually do because as far as plotting is concerned, I don't want to say not a whole lot happens because that's not really true. Um, but the plot is fairly direct, a fairly direct series of events. Um, but that really isn't 
what was most impressive to me, what was most impressive to me was um, the atmosphere, like you said, um, the characters, the acting, and um, the cinematography. I mean, this movie never gets boring because it's always so interesting just to look at. Uh, It's just put together so well, and it looks so good. Uh, and considering the fact that it was made in 1979, as far as quality is concerned, and to be fair, we watched the director's cut, which is different than the theatrical release. There are um, multiple scenes in the version that we watched that did not originally appear in the theatrical release. And because this is the director's cut, I'm sure that it's been cleaned up real nice. Um, so it almost looks as though it could have been made today. Uh, and it's, I think that it's held up really, really well. Yeah, and the thing that makes it not look like it was made today is because it is so obvious that everything on this set, everything they touch, everything in this movie is 100% real and practical. Yeah. The sets are amazing. The sets are so good. The And they built these full-size sets that took up uh, whole sound stages of corridors when they go out onto the alien planet and they end up in this big alien ship this gigantic room uh, that is also just a very iconic shot from the movie where you have this uh, large sort of mummified uh, other alien creature that's there and gives you this sense that, you know, this ship has been abandoned for a very long time. And then later on, they go and find these eggs. I mean, everybody should know this story and these scenes by now. All of this stuff was built full size, real And then, you know, for the other kind of special effects shots incorporated with some fantastic miniature work, this movie comes right in the middle of the Star Wars era. So just a few years before this, when we were when everybody was blown away by the majesty and the special effects of Star Wars and presenting a very different image of space than we had been accustomed to before that. You know, and I grew up watching Star Wars, of course, but also Mm -hmm. As I said before on here, a lot of science fiction movies with my dad from the 50s and the 60s uh, that he had on tape. And a lot of them were super cheesy and super corny, but they all had this very gleaming, crisp, clean, nice, futuristic type view of space, right? That everything uh, everything was polished and people were wearing these really pressed and, and bright, colorful uniforms with these bubbles over their heads uh, going out on these fantastic planets. And those movies are a joy to watch. I love that vision of the future. But when Star Wars came along, it gave us what we often call a very lived-in look of the future, right? Where, where we have all this advanced technology, but it's a little worn it's a little analog at times. It breaks. <laughs> it it needs to be shaken and, and uh, soldered and stuff like that. And you get the feeling that a lot of stuff has been cobbled together over the centuries to make what people make. And then this movie comes along, and it's kind of like that, but in a different way. I feel like this world that this takes place in and this, this ship that this takes place in is a, is a salvage ship. It goes around and, and sort of salvages junk from space and then brings it back to Earth. And so it's enormous uh, because it's towing a whole bunch of stuff. And every character in this movie, they're not swashbuckling adventurers traveling the galaxy. 
they're blue collar workers. <laughs> they're the yeah. they're the very solid blue collar workers of the future who are bitching about their job from day one, bitching about how much they're going to get paid. Are they going to get a cut? It's like people standing around and complaining about the union. They all work for a company that's never named. It's named later. Uh, actually, there are some words. Uh, what is it? Utani something. Whalen Utani, I think. And in future movies, that gets incorporated more in. But in t- but in this movie, they just refer to it as their company, and they're they're bitching about the man mm-hmm. and uh, arguing that they've been woken up from this this sleep to deal with some issue, something that you know has come up on this planet that they've got to explore, um, some distress signal, and the computer has taken them out of their deep sleep as they're on their way back to Earth because it's their obligation, according to code section, blah, 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 that any time there is some strange transmission from an alien planet, they have to go explore it. It's part of their contract. Right. <laughs> so they're not out there nobly exploring space. The, they're a bunch of blue-collar workers on a salvage crew. They really don't want to do it. They hope they're going to get paid for it and uh, get their cut of whatever they may, might happen to find for the company on their way home. And what an interesting setting, you know, for a space mm-hmm. movie that at the time especially was totally unique. Yeah, I, and that's part of what makes watching the film so interesting too is because they are relatable characters um, and part of what makes them relatable is that their relationships uh, seem realistic. You know, they, they have relationships with one another, uh, some of them positive, some of them tense, that's not really the focus. It's more in the background, but it paints and realistic isn't the right word, but a believable picture of this group of people. I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well... You get what you contracted for, like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else uh, gets more than us. Oh, mother wants to talk to you. And so I found the characters. I was I was invested uh, in them. Um, I was interested in them. I was interested in their motivations. And it's interesting to read. There is so much that you can read about the history of this film, the making of the movie, the different iterations that it went through, ideas that were thought of but not used, and uh, relationships was one of those things. I mean, initially, there were going to be... I don't know if the, if romantic is the right word, but there were going to be romantic and sexual relationships. They wanted to explore that with the crew. They wanted to kind of suggest uh, casual sexual relationships between some of the crew members because if you're going to be confined with six other people for years or however long they're going to be out there, um, they thought that it would only be natural that there would be some kind of sexual relationships between these people. And as the franchise went on and grew, some of the backstory of some of these characters was even adapted and and added to. At one point in time, on the extras for one of the films, um, a special edition of one of the films, the history of the crew here, um, their their biographies was explored, and it was suggested that Tom Skerritt's character, Dallas, 
and Veronica Cartwright's character, Lambert, um, had actually been born the opposite gender, but had gone through gender reassignment. Um, oh, really? The, yeah. <laughs> uh, they they kind of backpedaled on that after there was some fan outcry. But uh, I just think that it's interesting that, you know, they're thinking about all of these things. And, and it, it comes through in the performances. And like you said, the, you know, these are people, some of them at the beginning of their careers, most notably Sigourney Weaver, who was a young actress in this movie. This launched her to fame, and she's had an amazing career um, and continues to have an amazing career. Um, but others, you know, Tom Skerritt as Dallas, Veronica Cartwright, uh, Veronica Cartwright, I already mentioned, as Lambert, Harry Dean Stanton um, as Brett, John Hurt as Kane, Ian Holm as Ash, almost the entire ensemble cast went on to do great things which i think speaks to their talent which is on full display here in the movie yeah and most of them pretty much with the exception of sigourney weaver honestly and maybe yafat uh kato parker Mm -hmm. all of them actually were pretty well established before they came in what's kind of remarkable is that this movie that started out as what was to be this fairly low budget film right that on its face if you just I suppose if you just read the script, comes across as more or less another one of these low-budget sci-fi alien in space horror movies. Um, you know, we've done Galaxy of Terror, which did actually come after this, but not long after this. And and um, before this, in 1974, was Dark Star, which was directed by John Carpenter. On paper, this script and the way that just the plot, like you said, is so simple and so basic, the dialogue fairly sparse too this movie could have gone either way right it could have just been another somewhat schlocky scary stuff in space happens movie or it because of the people attached and the money that was eventually poured into it the budget was doubled and that's when some of these other actors started getting interested in it right um when ridley scott was attached when the budget was doubled then they brought on hr uh geiger do you say geiger or geiger I'm not I sure. I think it's Geiger. It's Geiger, right? Um, oh, who was a famous artist at the time and is 100% responsible for the iconic look and design of the alien and the sets, which just becomes a, a part of the DNA of this movie and the series. It's just a whole convergence of talent that just elevated this into what you know became the birth, the seed of an iconic series. And you can't have an iconic series without coming from strong roots. It's it's kind of a miracle, really. I, I don't. I mean, it sounds like I'm playing it up, but when no. you read more about the movie and about what you know, the process of making this movie, it could have gone either way, and it completely went in the other direction to become, like I said, the roots of a very, very strong, very solid concept that we celebrate today, and we can watch a movie like you said, like this today, and it holds up. It looks like it was made yesterday. It's it's fantastic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and and a lot of that is owed to Star Wars, as you suggested earlier, because before the success of Star Wars, nobody was interested in this script. Uh, not nobody. That's not true. Roger Corman wanted to do it, and uh, it would have been right up his alley. And yeah. had he done it... <laughs> You know, <laughs> it would have been completely different. I, you and I might still talk about it, but I don't think that it would have had the kind of uh, success that the movie ended up having. As all of these different elements started to come together, I think that 
everybody involved started to realize um, just how good this could potentially be. In fact, I think it was Tom Skerritt um, who was initially approached for a role and he turned it down. But then after some rewrites and after some um, of the other people involved got on board, he went back and renegotiated and said that he would do it. But before the film even came out, he renegotiated or tried to. I I don't remember if it, it was finalized, but he tried to renegotiate his salary. So instead of taking a set salary, he wanted to take a percentage of um the profits which you have to have a lot of faith in a project if you're willing to take that kind of risk and and uh whether or not that worked out for him i don't know but it was a smart move like yeah i i think the design is uh a big part of what makes it so interesting that being said the monster itself which in the franchise would eventually go on to become known as the xenomorph it you barely see it. Uh, I think it has like three or four minutes of screen time. In that amount of screen time, you very, very rarely see it uh, in full um, and hardly ever see it straight on from the front. It's almost always in silhouette. The movie is um, fairly dark, but uh, and the sets are fairly dark. And you've got the industrial look of the Nostromo, which is their ship, but then you've also got the alien ship, and once the alien is loose on the Nostromo, the alien starts to change the environment as well, and that's something that always throughout the entirety of this series has been so interesting to me are the set pieces, because Geiger's design makes the interiors of these locations look almost organic. The structures look like bones um, and and taut flesh. So you almost feel like you're in the belly of a beast uh, a lot of the time. And the I, I, I just can't praise it enough for how good it looks. The design is just... It's kind of mind-blowing. I, I can't think really of anything to compare it to today that I've been as impressed by. It's highly original, right? It's uh-huh. super original. And, you know, Geiger's artwork is original. If you look at his stuff, uh, he's German. It's very, very sexual, and it explores the boundaries between, like you said in the movie, the mechanical and the biological. It's it's very much like a sci-fi type of um, David Cronenberg, right? Yeah. There's, there's a sort of sense of body horror about the environment itself uh, in this movie. And that also plays to some of the jump scares and some of the shock in this movie where you're seeing what you think is mechanical stuff, and then it turns out that, that the alien's there. Right, right. <laughs> and and he's been there in front of you the entire time because he blends in so well with the mechanical environment, just the design of his body. So there's a scene I think is unique to the director's cut, but when one of the characters, it's Harry Dean Stanton's character, mm-hmm. wanders in and they're looking for the alien that's loose in the ship, and he's in this very tall room with these chains hanging down and clanging together and water dripping down, and he's looking up. And it's it's eerie. We know something's going on. He's a little spooked by things. And when he looks up, he sees these chains swinging. 
And this shot is so good because it's it's half in darkness and it's mostly shadow, but it's just a shot above of the chain swinging. And if you notice, and you almost can't help but notice, but I think first time around, if you'd seen this movie for the first time, you might miss it. Mm-hmm. The alien's right there, swinging with the chains. Yeah. Kind of curled up into a ball, covering half the screen. But it's so subtle because the alien mixes in with the environment so much that it's quite possible you could and would miss it. And later on, the alien kind of comes, is hiding in a part of the shuttle, and the camera lingers quite long on this particular shot of Ripley walking around and just doing mundane stuff. And it's not until the alien starts to move and shift out of its position that you're just like whoa <laughs> that that's not the side of the inside of the the, the corridor that's like the freaking alien's head mm-hmm. right there among the pipes and i think that the series all along really plays us to its advantage it's so great uh this this mingling and it creates a very uncomfortable feeling because this is very unnatural for us right right at this point, we probably got to talk a little bit about the the writer of the movie, which is kind of shocking, Dan O'Bannon, who we've talked about. We've done several of his movies, uh, and he is we, we probably, by the end of this podcast, will have done every Dan O'Bannon movie that he's made because he <laughs> hasn't made too many of them, but the ones that he's made are worth talking about. This was his second script. He did Dark Star before this in 1974, which was directed by John Carpenter, which he was very disappointed in because it was low budget. It kind of came across as a little schlocky, and he really wanted to amp up and try the alien concept again, but do it on a more visceral level that's going to be more pure horror. Uh, And he got together with a collaborator of his, Ronald Chusette, and the two of them worked very, very hard at this story. And again, probably part of the secret sauce that makes this work is that O'Bannon and Chusette were constantly involved in this movie from the beginning to the end. They were allowed on the set. They gave opinions. Uh, they gave opinions that turned out to be very smart and, and iconic parts of the series. Like they were originally going to make the face hugger alien painted green. Uh, and when O'Bannon happened to be on the set and see it unpainted, he really was taken by the fleshy, almost human look of it when it was unpainted and said, no, 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 let's let's keep this this sort of flesh tone color, which is a beautiful choice. <laughs> yeah. And just adds to that. So they were so intricately involved in the movie and to the point of bringing in Geiger uh, and and a lot of these other people that uh, I think that that just speaks to you need a vision. You know, you need a vision to have a good movie and you can't always make a really good movie by committee. Certain things happen because different people contribute. But if you don't have sort of a singular vision of one or two people really pushing and driving the project through and making ultimate decisions and, and strong suggestions, you don't always end up with such a strong artistic piece as you would when this passes through 15 different writers and then the writer never sees it again and people make changes and stuff. And then at the end of the day, you know, you hear this off all, all the time about movies is the writer looks at the movie and wants to disown from it, right? Because the, what they see on screen doesn't seem to match what they had in mind when they were writing the script. Uh, but yeah, Dan O'Bannon, right? I mean, he, he did Dark Star. He did Dead and Buried, which we did. Um, he did the uh, original story for a portion of Heavy Metal, which is a, a sci-fi type animated movie that's a bit notorious. And then he did Return of the Living Dead, which... right. It's hilarious zombie movie and that I I love and is iconic, but totally out there, schlocky, right? Mm-hmm. Life Force, which we will probably do at some point, yeah. Toby Hooper sci-fi movie, Invaders from Mars, the remake, which we did, mm-hmm. and then freaking Total Recall, right? Which I still to this day think is one of the best movies out there. 
what a great career this guy had, even though he only did about a half a dozen movies. And to look back at from the guy who did Return of the Living Dead and say, oh, by the way, he's one of the singular minds behind Alien and the Alien franchise is a, is a bit mind-blowing. It is, but to an extent, you know, it, it is a movie made by committee because uh, as good as his story was ultimately initially the concept was just an alien on a spaceship and uh, it just grew from there and there were some elements of the story that ultimately ended up as part of the movie that O'Bannon wasn't a big fan of and one of those um, was the the introduction of the character Ash which is Ian Holmes' uh, character in the movie. You know, as it turns out, so they are woken up mid-journey. Actually, they're on their way home. And as you said, sent to this alien planet to check out what they initially think is a distress call, but what they ultimately realize is a warning to stay away. And that's how the alien gets on board after they explore that place and the face hugger um, attaches itself to uh, John Hurt's character, Kane, and they bring it onto the ship. Initially, the idea was that the ship's computer, which they call Mother, was the one who had a vested interest, and (laughs) that vested interest was just science (laughs) for bringing the alien on board. Um, That in some way, the, the, the ship itself had motivation. Um, but they ultimately decided that that was too much like um, 2001 A Space Odyssey with Hal, so they introduced this character of Ash to kind of be an intermediary between the science world and also the corporate world that he has been placed there by. And O'Bannon wasn't a huge fan of it, but they went with the idea anyway, and I think that it it worked out uh, very well. You mentioned uh, Geiger's work uh, being darkly sexual, uh, and it is. And I think that watching this, the last time I watched this, I had to have been in my 20s, and I'm significantly older now, and I think that some of the undertones that I hadn't really considered before were kind of glaring to me this time. I didn't realize how much sexuality there was uh, in in the movie, especially with the alien. It, it never had really occurred to me that the face hugger implanting the alien into Kane's chest is really kind of uh, a rape metaphor. He's impregnated, basically. And uh, I read in doing the research for this that they very specifically wanted it to be a male character who was put in that position. Um, When these characters were written, they were written without gender. And decisions were made about who would be a woman and who would be a man only later on when they started doing casting. And Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley, most people who were involved had just expected that that would be played by a man. Um, Sigourney Weaver went on in her career several times to play characters that were originally written for men. I think that it was um, Ridley Scott who was insistent that it be a man who is violated in that way and impregnated in that way because he specifically wanted to make his male audience feel 
that kind of discomfort when we usually see women in that kind of peril. And I had never thought of that before, and it's really interesting. Initially, the alien itself was going to be more sexual in nature. Um, there was a, a scene, a sex scene between Dallas and Ripley, and in one iteration of that scene, which was scripted but never shot, the alien was supposed to observe them having sex and not attack them because it was in some way titillated or aroused. In the finale, um, Sigourney Weaver is the last woman standing, and she ends up alone on a shuttle where she thinks that she's safe, um, and so she begins to disrobe so that she can go into cryosleep. The, the film got some criticism about that because they felt uh, critics felt that it was just you know unnecessary, gratuitous to have her disrobe. But the initial concept was that the alien, which is on the ship with her, unbeknownst to her, was again going to see her undress and was going to be sexually aroused, and they were going to deal with that in some way. Now, frankly, I think it was probably for the best that they ended up eliminating some of those elements, but there are still hints and suggestions of them there. Uh, and I do think that that adds to kind of the level of discomfort and tension that you feel throughout basically the course of the whole movie, or at least from the time that they land on the alien planet. You're absolutely right about that, whether you're aware of it or not. Even there was something that I noticed this time around because I was, again, I had this giant screen in front of me and I was quite taken in by it. When they land on that alien planet to investigate the ship and they see this giant ship, which I guess they, they nicknamed the Big Croissant because it's <laughs> it's kind of U-shaped. But again, this ends up coming back later. In fact, in the, the more recent movies, Prometheus, mm-hmm. uh, we see whatever race created this ship, which is still... I think a little unknown, this ship comes up again and again. Anyway, as they're walking towards the ship, where they enter the ship are through these openings in the sides that are clearly like vaginas. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they're tall and a little narrow and have like kind of a little lip around them. And that, of course, totally blew by me when I was a kid watching this movie. And they go into it, and like you said, they're walking down these corridors which seem very organic. Uh... They're they're long and they're narrow and they're round, but they have this texture to the inside and they're slimy and they're drippy and there's a little bit like bones, but also sort of like ridges. It's very much like a kind of like a vaginal canal. And they go in again to this giant room where there's that big um, mummified whatever this race of aliens was that piloted that ship, which is obviously larger than a human sitting in who knows some kind of control panel observational thing. Uh, in the middle of the room. And, you know, this movie was so low budget that they were still trying, was it, you know, they're still trying to save money on this. And Ridley Scott had to fight to get these full-size sets made. For this giant room, which is a beautiful, beautiful part of the movie, it ended up serving dual purpose. They made half of the room, half of the wall, basically, of this giant room and put this guy in the middle who's on kind of a swivel platform so that they could turn it around and, you know, they could swivel this guy around and film it from different angles and just make that one wall look like it was all of the wall in the room. It's kind of circular. And then they removed that, apparently, part of the set, just that that circular platform he was on, and that same room became the egg room, which they rappelled down into from there. 
a funny bit of trivia, apparently, you know, there's this really cool effect when they rappel into this egg room that all of these little eggs are, well, they're not little, but, you know, knee-high eggs are down there in the bottom of this room, and they're covered with this kind of mist that just seems to hang over them like a blanket. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very odd effect. This is completely enclosed, and it's full of leathery objects like eggs or something. There's a, a layer of mist just covering the eggs that reacts when broken. And maybe the idea is that the penetration of this mist somehow wakes up the eggs a little bit. Mm-hmm. But they use the laser that they use to cut across the mist in the bottom of this room to create that effect. They borrowed it from the soundstage next door where the Who <laughs> yep. were putting together their show. And they were lasers from their show that they literally borrowed uh, to use for this movie to fantastic effect. But anyway, you know, you've got these eggs. And the eggs, obviously, are are long and tall and very organic and gross. And you can see things moving inside of them. And then it opens up and this face hugger jumps out. And like you said, basically rapes this guy, shoves his its its long proboscis down into his throat and lays this egg in, in his stomach, unbeknownst to everybody at the time, with this hand over the, the face. And I think uh, everybody was trying to figure out uh, well, Dan O'Bannon and Shusat, when they were talking about the script and trying to work out the elements of the story, how are we going to get the alien on the ship? And Shusat just came up with the idea, well, it, it f***ed one of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that got developed into this face hugger thing, which the design of which is great. And O'Bannon had a lot to do with the final design of this. A few designs went through it, but he ended up more or less drawing what ended up being it. And it looks fairly human. It has these long, they look like bony fingers uh, grasping around both sides of this person's face, you know, and it's not going to let go until it's done what it needs to do. It's very violating and very unsettling when you see it. It's very rapey, even though it's just sitting there and this guy can't move. They bring it on board the ship. Yeah, and it's like both of us have said, seeing this as younger people that just didn't really even cross my mind. But now, as an adult, it, it seems so apparent. Uh, and I, I think that that's interesting that it can... It didn't feel sexual or inappropriate to me as a kid, but as an adult, there's just that extra added level of discomfort um, when you consider it in that light and uh, you know all of that that you've talked about is also interesting i that the space jockey scene which is the big alien scene that was a huge set but they also did interesting trickery um it, it was built to scale and they didn't film the wide shots with the actual actors in fact they used kids um and i think one of the kids happened to be christian bale and then the other two uh, were Ridley Scott's kids, so they oh, put wow. these. So they put these kids in these spacesuits for the wide shots, so that it would look that much bigger. And it does. I mean, it just looks enormous, and it's so impressive to look at. 
when they do go back, by the way, I read the novelization of this, and the novelization is quite good, and it includes not only all of the deleted scenes that were restored in the director's cut, but there's also some additional scenes that were never filmed. Um, And one of those was how Lambert and Dallas got Kane back to the ship, and then later on, when the alien is loose in, in the ship and they have to figure out what they're going to do about it, they devise these weapons and stuff. There was a lot more description of actually, you know, designing these weapons and designing the net that would hold this thing. Um, if you're a fan of this movie and you haven't read the novelization, I would recommend it. It's just got some cool little extra fill-in-the-blank sort of stuff. But one of the things that struck me so much watching it this time around was how timely it was because, or or it is today, because Dallas and Lambert bring Kane back to the ship and he's got this thing on his face and they are demanding to be let in, but Ripley refuses to let them in because it goes against code. Um, and she says, which I think this time around had to be my favorite line from the movie, if we break quarantine, we could all die. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> right? Hey, Ripley. Right here. We're clean. Let us in. What happened to Kane? Something has attached itself to him. We have to get him to the infirmary right away. What kind of thing? I need a clear definition. An organism. Open the hatch. Wait a minute. If we let it in, the ship could be infected. You know the quarantine procedure. 24 hours for decontamination. It could die in 24 hours. Open the hatch. Listen to me. If we break quarantine, we could all die. Look, but you open the goddamn hatch. We have to get him inside. No. Boy, that has a whole new meaning to us now, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, and she and she says it more than once. Like they discuss it multiple times. How you know there are these protocols that, for their own safety and preservation, they should not have allowed any of them back on the ship with this unknown parasite or whatever it is and i thought wow what a what a timely issue (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and then it also becomes fairly timely because we're right now we're talking about the influence of corporations and our first major conflict between the crew comes between ripley and ian holmes character ash Mm -hmm. because uh, ash is down there by the airlock uh, entrance and while ripley is insisting that she's not going to let them on ash finally just hits the button and opens the airlock and this sets up a tension between them the whole time. And again, watching it as an adult now, a little more sophisticated, realizing that there's a nice bit of tension between her and Ash throughout this movie from there on, when she's clearly a bit suspicious of his, his motives. Not just, uh, you know, you did something you weren't supposed to do. And his argument to her is, well, if I didn't let them in, what was going to happen? You were just going to let them die in there? Like, we don't know what this is. Like, they could die. It's not just that, but then he's also really interested. Of course, it's his role on the ship. Uh, he's like the scientist Science physician officer, or whatever. Yeah. But he's clearly extremely fascinated with um, ex- examining the alien and taking it apart, you know, um, while they're on the ship, not putting it in a jar and waiting till they get back, almost dispassionately so. 
uh, more interested in fascinated by the alien than he really cares so much about the people and their safety. And it doesn't come across overblown, you know? I mean, in a, in a low-budget film with less talented actors, they would probably play this up a bit. But it's just so realistic and subtle the way that Ian Holmes plays it. You know, from the beginning, he's this guy who who just seems a little off, maybe, from the rest of them. He's a little quieter. He's a little more businesslike. I think in some of their earlier conversations when they're just sort of talking about the company, he's making excuses for that. Well, this is the company. This is the company, what the company says. You know, this is how, what we do. This is why we do it. And yet, at this one moment, he's the one to break the rules to let these people in. It's an interesting twist, and it makes you highly suspicious of his character, even though he's not running around leering with one eyebrow raised the whole time. Hmm? Well, as I said, I'm still collating, actually, but uh, I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. He has a funny habit of shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions. Said nothing. That's funny. What does it mean? Please don't do that. Thank you. I'm sorry. Well, it's an interesting combination of elements, making him a tough little son of a bitch. And you let him in. I was obeying a direct order, remember? Ash, when Dallas and Kane are off the ship, I'm senior officer. Oh, yes, I forgot. But if you do know, as I hope, listeners, you do, that ultimately he is villainous and doesn't care about preserving the crew. They are expendable to him. If you know that, watching the film, there are subtleties of Ian Holmes' performance that suggest it. Just yes. slight, slight looks. Um, and it's so good. Yeah, it, it's, it's really impressive if you know, because I don't think that it would give you pause at all on a first viewing if you didn't know. You would just think he was another one of the crew, and I don't know that there would be any reason to have any suspicions about him. That's played up more in the novelization as well. There are some additional scenes. Um, when the face hugger is on Kane, they x-ray him. And you see that a little bit in the movie. In the novelization, someone notices a dark spot on one of uh, Kane's lungs. Um, and Ash, Ian Holmes' character, says, Oh, it must just be a, a flaw in, in the machine. Uh, of course, we find out later that he knows that it's actually an ovum or, or something that's been deposited inside uh, Kane's chest. There's also a, another scene in the novelization where once the big alien, you know, emerges um, and they're trying to get rid of it, they have a, a rare opportunity at one point where they almost get it into the airlock, but at the very last second, an alarm is sounded and it startles the alien and he runs away. And uh, Ripley realizes later that it had been Ash that had set off the alarm because he didn't want the alien to escape. But uh, all that intrigue, <laughs> it's subtle, 
but ultimately when it's revealed what's going on if you go back there are those uh subtle hints and this time around i appreciated it even more maybe because i'd seen the movie before but there was this lingering question i'm not sure if it occurred to me before but it certainly did watching it this time they do this x-ray and like you said in the novelization it's a little more clear but in the movie they don't say anything about you know oh he's He's doing something down there. He's laying some egg or whatever, like nothing is said. Then you get this impression during this dinner scene afterwards. So the, the face hugger leaves the, the guy eventually. It just sort it of disappears. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, dies. They do a dissection on it, whatever. Which is really cool. I mean, we don't have to go into it, but like oh, it's all yeah. very organic. And again, highly reminiscent of sex organs. <laughs> oh, but yeah. it, it looks really cool <laughs> anyway. And they use like what? Like like real stuff, like sheep's bladders organs, and livers yeah. and mm -hmm. organs and oysters and stuff to make that happen. I mean, it's it doesn't look like plastic and latex for sure. No. And and again, they kind of do stupid breaking quarantine stuff where uh which which again is so understandable now maybe more understandable now than it used to be mm -hmm. like you know the guy's woken up and they kind of want him to be better and they kind of want to think that the that the danger is passed and even though some things are said about we still need to keep him isolated they kind of just don't right no. they all end up in the room with him and they're laughing and joking with him and so then they have dinner and during this dinner scene you know they're all sitting around laughing and john hurt's character uh what's his name again kane Kane starts to kind of start choking and uh, stand up, and he's obviously... And at first, they're all like, oh, are you okay there, buddy? And here is Ian Holmes' character. The doctor, physician on the, on the ship, more watching with interest uh -huh. than jumping up to do anything. And that is not something I remembered noticing so much the first time around. But it's clear, okay... He knew. <laughs> he knew there was something inside him, and he's probably just been waiting for this to happen. Yeah. And that was so chilling, right? Uh, but again, blink and you miss it, really. Well, and then, and and of course, everybody, I think, is familiar with this chest-bursting scene. I mean, it, it's absolutely iconic. We throw that word around quite a bit, but this one really is. It's been parodied many times. It's been copied many times, but uh, it was very unique. And of course, the lore is that none of the actors knew what was going to happen. Well, that's not entirely true. Of course, obviously, John Hurt knew what was going to happen. Um, as it turned out, Tom Skerritt was very interested in the process of filmmaking, so he had been following Ridley Scott around. And so he had been present during the discussions of the effect and how it was going to happen but Ridley Scott also asked him not to say anything to anybody else um, Sigourney Weaver has said that they knew something was going to happen they knew something was going to come out of his chest but th that's pretty much all they knew and um, she said that she started to get a little bit nervous when they arrived on set and the entire crew was wearing raincoats <laughs> but ultimately they didn't really know what was going to happen and the, the, the scene the chest burst scene was shot in one take with four or five different cameras at, positioned at different angles um, and they didn't know that blood was going to erupt from Kane's chest and Veronica Cartwright famously is splattered her face is splattered in blood and her reaction was her genuine reaction to that and apparently um, she was 
pretty distraught over it uh, in the aftermath. And Yafet Kato, who played Parker, was, uh, you know, according to stories told by the cast, upset by it too and, and went home and kind of locked himself in a room and wouldn't come out for half a day. And it is, it's such a great effect. But this, this, this little chestburster alien pops out and looks around and kind of snarls. And then it jumps out onto the table and runs away. But before it jumps out onto the table and runs away, somebody goes, I think it's Parker goes to grab it. And Ash says, no, don't touch it. And then it runs away. Now there's a logical reason why they would, why he would say don't touch it, because when they had tried to remove the face hugger and they had cut into it, it had bled acid, um, that had almost breached the hull of the ship. So logically, you know, they don't know anything about this alien. It might be risky to touch it, but ultimately he doesn't want it harmed. His purpose, as we find out, is to preserve this creature and return it to Earth for research, even if that's at the expense of the crew. And just yeah. those uh, subtleties, I think, are, are excellent. It's excellent storytelling. It's excellent acting on Ian Holmes' part. Um, it's great direction, uh, and it just works so well. And then, you know, following that scene... They go out looking for what they expect to be a small thing that has just emerged from their friend's chest, but apparently um, it matures at an alarming rate, and that's when we're then dealing with the big xenomorph. And I'm sure that all of you listening have seen it. You know, the xenomorph uh, changes appearance somewhat over the course of the series. Uh, Ridley Scott originally wanted it to be an animatronic uh, in this movie, but the technology wasn't good enough, so they did have to go with a guy in a suit, which Scott had initially not wanted to do. But they hired this uh, like seven-foot-tall guy, Balahi Badejo, um, tall, lanky guy to wear this suit, and they were just careful about lighting and shooting so that it didn't look silly. And there are times, to be fair, where you can tell, especially when it reaches out with its arms, they're very human-like, and so it's easy to yeah. bel- it's easy to understand that it's a guy in a suit. But it looks fantastic. Of course, as the series went on, they played with the design, and they had more that they could do with technology. And because this is a being that gestates inside other living things they started to play with well if it gestates inside something that's not human will it take on characteristics of whatever it is that it did gestate in and they experimented with that and stuff which I think is very cool but here the original um, he's um, bipedal he, he walks on two feet or can at least um, but it's the alien it's it's like you said it's it's virtually camouflaged in the environment it's incredibly stealthy um, that stealth is on display even more in the novelization um, it can virtually be right beside behind underneath or above someone at any given time without that person knowing that it's there and you get that in the film too and it just it all comes together the way it was shot the way it was lit it's believable you believe that they could be in the presence of this thing and not be aware because you as the viewer 
are not aware. Like, it's right there, but it's only when it moves in a particular way that you think, oh my gosh, it's been there that whole time. Yeah, and this ship really needs more lights. Right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I did, when they were looking around for the face hugger. um... Dallas is looking around with like a pin light, like a, like a pin flashlight. I'm like, dude, turn the lights on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And Ridley Scott, um, you know, he does such a good job of setting up the ship. The whole opening scene of the movie is just slowly coming in onto the ship and slowly taking us into the ship and slowly taking us through the corridors of the ship uh, into the control room where the computer wakes up the ship, you know, after its slumber and then slowly pans us into as lights are coming on into their room where they've been in this cryogenic sleep. And as things open up, it's very 2001 in a way that it takes yeah. its time, but also that it really sets the environment of the ship as this dark chamber not cavernous. Like I said before, like tunnels. Yeah, or like a like a boiler room or yeah. the, the it, interior of a I don't know, I don't want to say fact, but it, I mean it, it kind of looks like a ship, like a naval ship or or like yeah. the interior submarine look like that. Right? Yeah, it, a submarine, yeah. exactly, which makes perfect logical sense. And air is shooting out of things randomly. Yeah. yeah, it it wouldn't be pristine. You know, it wouldn't be the hallways of the Death Star, you know, like right. this, it's, they're they're basically a space tow truck. <laughs> it's yeah. it's not luxury, and I love it. It's it's perfect I, for the the story. And I loved these scenes too, where the two guys, you know, Parker and um, Parker and Brett. Brett, Harry Dean Stanton's character. They're like the mechanical guys, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and they bitch about how, you know, nothing on the ship would get fixed if, if it wasn't for us. Like, you know, we're the ones keeping this place running and we should get more money and blah, blah, blah. And I love these scenes where they're going off like this. You kind of imagine they're going to start talking about the union, you know? Right, yeah. They're literally like fixing the ship like you'd fix a car, you know? Uh-huh. It's just these very very mechanical type things on the ship. And even for the time that this was shot, there's deliberately lo-fi stuff there. You know, the computer screens and things in there are deliberately lo-fi. It's just a unique feel to it. Yet also, there are times when, again, it, you're going down these corridors. It's, it's like a mirror image of the bigger ship that they found the alien on. Again, these tunnels um, that seem through the pipework in there, kind of organic, kind of a little alien, you know, which provides, like we said, the alien room to hide. But then, you know, like the name of the computer on the ship is Mother. <laughs> and when they go in to talk to the Mother computer, it's distinctly different. It looks like a little womb. Mm -hmm. They go into this little room, and it's it almost looks like there's maybe some cloth or some fabric, you know, stretched over the walls. It's a little padded. There are lights on in there. It's very bright. It looks extremely comfortable, like a comfortable padded room compared to the rest of the ship. You know, these little touches are so interesting to dissect well and there's a series of such great tense scenes that happen in over a short period of time but where the characters start to get picked off and brett is the first to get picked off by the big alien um and you never really see a lot there's a lot of suggestion of violence but you and a lot of really close-up stuff, but it happens so quickly you almost can't see what happens ripley and uh, Parker, I believe, uh, see him get pulled up into the ventilation system. So they know they're dealing with something large and powerful. And the only way that 
because it's working in the air vents, um, they decide to try to trap it in there. There's a great claustrophobic scene of um, Dallas in the air vents, um, and and Lambert, Veronica Cartwright's character, is tracking the alien's movement, and it's moving closer and closer to Dallas until it's really on top of him, and um, Veronica Cartwright's performance, she's so scared, and she's screaming at him to move and to get out, and at the very last second, when he does start to move, she says, no, not that way, the other way, the other way, and then, of course, the alien jumps out uh, at at Dallas and at us, the audience, and it's a great scare. Uh, Eventually, once Dallas is dead, they initially are going to try to continue his plan even though veronica cartwright's character wants them to try to just escape on the shuttle but they can't because it only holds it doesn't hold four people and there's four of them left um and that's when ripley finally because now that the first and second officers are both dead or presumed dead ripley is now in charge and that's when she goes to talk to mother and she overrides um, a command and finds out what the true objective is, which is to return this uh, alien for research. The crew is expendable, um, and that's when Ash reveals himself. And there's a big fight where he just picks her up and throws her all over the place. Um, yeah. And it takes uh, Parker and Lambert coming in and assisting her to get him off and they struggle with that and eventually Parker picks up something big and heavy and knocks Ash's head completely off which is when we fully realize even though it's been suggested briefly before that he is in fact an android um, and not human which I suppose makes sense that he really has no empathy that he's just in it to do his job and in the interest of science but it's cool. I mean, it looks great. The effects, of course, aren't seamless. Um, after his head comes off and is kind of dangling by his body, they get him down on the ground, and they're going to reanimate his head to see if he can give them any additional information. And and it's not seamless. You can clearly tell um, when Sigourney Weaver is working with a prop head, and then there's a quick cut, and all of a sudden, clearly, Ian Holmes' head is up you know, under a table in this prosthetic. Um, and yeah, it shows, but for the time, it still looks fantastic. Yeah, and as a kid, this shocked me too, because once again, this android, <laughs> I, I was so used to these movies of the 60s, you know, in the 50s, where robots and androids, if they break, they're sparking and uh-huh. they're wires and things jutting out from them. But again, like so much of the rest of this movie, this android is very organic inside. Like, Mm -hmm. the whole inside, it feels like his blood is very milky. You know, he has this sort of milky fluid, like like a white milky oil that's keeping him going. And it's just very uncomfortable little bits and pieces of bubbles and and tubes and I guess they use pasta and fiber optics and little bladders and, and marbles and things just to create this very unique original idea of like the inside of an android and how it would work to make it not so me- not so electronic but organic uh, and that 
really works. I mean, it's hard to unpack exactly how it would literally work, but it works as a visual for the movie and uh, it makes this scene very disturbing and unsettling as Ian Holm is sitting there talking to them, this severed head, spitting out this milk, you know, milky white mm-hmm. stuff out of his mouth. Uh, I remember being so grossed out by this as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got to go back. I've got to go back real quick to that fight scene between him and Ripley and get a little personal here because I've just got to tell the world. You know, my dad, uh, my, my parents are fantastic people, and I feel like they just really raised me right. And one thing that my dad did with me is I got a very real and honest and in-depth birds and bees discussion <laughs> when was necessary. And interestingly enough, there was a point at which he was talking to me about, you know, now that you're older and you're, you know, you're kind of seeing things differently and you're having these different feelings, you're probably going to notice things that are over-sexualized, like things in the movies and, and symbolic things and whatnot that, that is there to sort of, you know, turn you on or hit you in these spots. And he used this scene from Alien. This was his example to me. This scene where Ian Holmes' character is fighting with Ripley and he has her pinned down on this bed. And this bed is like basically, I think it's Parker's bunk bed. And Mm. Parker has been like every now and then reading like porno magazines, or at least they're implied they're porno magazines. And in the fuzzy in the background on the wall, you can see these pinups there, you know, of of clearly Mm. nude centerfolds that are there. And in the context of this, the way that he decides to try to dispatch Ripley is he rolls up one of these magazines and tries to force it down her throat. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like an it's like another rape, right? It's it's mm-hmm. it's highly sexually suggestive that he's shoving the cylinder down her throat. It's so odd. He's not slapping her around. He's not beating her up. He could. He could be choking her. I got to give my dad a lot of credit for coming out of the woodwork with this example yeah. from this movie that made total sense to me at the time because we were both big fans of the film, uh, and that was the first time I was ever aware. Uh, to look for really like any kind of symbolism or subtleties in movies, you know, like what's behind what they're actually doing here and and what's there. And this this scene, uh, again, it doesn't draw extreme attention to itself, but it adds it's more of that that we have in the whole movie of the penetration of the the aliens, little kind of like phallic phallic inner mouth that comes out and, you know, gets people. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting choice. And I guess they didn't even tell her exactly Ridley Scott told her he's going to try to push it in your hooter and (laughs) she was confused because uh, you know she's like in America like hooters are like boobs like well he's going to try to shove it in my chest or you know whatever and so she was a little surprised when he started to try to put it in her mouth Uh, so that performance is is quite unsettling (laughs) it is It, it certainly is they don't really get any new information um, from Ash when they reanimate him. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. I admire its purity. A survivor. And all clouded by conscience remorse or delusions of morality but the three remaining crew decide that they're going to board the shuttle and take their chances in space and leave the alien behind um and blow up the ship self-destruct the ship 
So uh, Ripley goes to prepare the shuttle while the other two go off to collect coolant. Um, and they, uh, Lambert and Parker, are then dispatched. And and again, there's some sexuality to the way, or some at least suggestive sexuality uh, to the way that Veronica Cartwright's character is taken out, which we actually don't see, but what we do see is some appendage of the alien um, making its way kind of sensuously up uh, the inner part of her leg, and then we don't really know what happens to her after that. But ultimately, ultimately it's Ripley alone, and there's a lot of business with her, you know, starting the self-destruct and then she goes back to the shuttle there's a cat on board and she had gotten the cat into a carrier and apparently the alien had been drawn by the cat which was on the shuttle so now the alien is on the shuttle so Ripley goes back and tries to stop the detonation but she's too late and she runs back to the shuttle the alien appears to be gone and so she uh, you know launches the shuttle and it takes off and the big part of the ship that they were hauling explodes and that's when she thinks she's safe again Um, and as I said before she disrobes in these very you know small revealing undergarments Um, and what I thought was interesting is I, I wasn't really sure of what was going on here because she is kind of messing with some controls or something not realizing that she is just inches from the creature and at one point it reaches its hand out and she retreats but it doesn't come out now i'm still not certain of this but is it supposed to be suggested that it's hiding because it's scared because of the explosions or something because it's just kind of odd to me it's been so aggressive throughout the rest of the movie and it really appears to be trying to hide itself in this moment yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there are a couple ways you could look at it. If you want to grant the alien a good degree of intelligence, and I think we can, maybe it kind of understands all along what's going on here, and it's trying to hide in the shuttle as well, so it knows it needs Ripley to take off <laughs> into space and escape the, the ship that's going to explode. Or like you said, uh, it was it was drawn to the shuttle because it was uh, hiding from all of the noise and, and, and everything that's going on during the self-destruct. I mean, the ship is a, is a mess. Well, the self-destruct procedure is going on. Like, right. it's just blasting air everywhere. And there can also be, like you said earlier, a little bit of this, uh, you know, he's kind of leering at her a bit and not mm. so willing to just go in and, and take her out like he did the rest of the crew. You know, presumably maybe this is what we didn't see him do to, uh, you know, Lambert's character, you know, with that appendage. Or I think it's also been suggested maybe he was a little injured or just tired. Yeah, yeah. So it could be any one of those things. In in any case, Ripley is able to slowly and very tensely um, slip into one of these spacesuits. I love I don't know why I love that scene so much like she just finds herself backed into a closet and she kind of happens to turn to her side and realizes there's a spacesuit and she so covertly just slips herself into it and I remember even as a kid thinking how smart she was and to move so slowly and cautiously so as not to draw attention to herself or to startle the alien um, I just thought very very clever and then the ending is really interesting 
the ending that we get is very interesting, but it's also interesting in the context of what it was initially conceived as. Initially, the ending was conceived that Ripley would escape on the shuttle and the alien would be killed in the explosion on the bigger part of the ship and she would just get away. I don't remember who it was that didn't like that, but I think the next suggestion from Ridley Scott and, and, and I'm getting the mix, mixed up. I think that the writer Dan O'Bannon and Ridley Scott had conflicting views. One of them wanted the alien to get on the shuttle with her and they would have a big battle which would culminate in the alien decapitating her and she would be dead and then the alien would get on the airwaves or the recording or whatever and it was going to mimic Dallas's voice as though it were pretending to be him to you know go back to earth or whatever um that was rejected I think by the studio because they thought that it was too bleak and so they ended up going with the ending that we see, which I think is exciting and satisfying for the audience because um, basically it, it's not terribly complicated. Um, Ripley gets herself into a space suit and then she opens the airlock and I feel like the the alien charges her, but what, does she kick it out or something like that yeah plus the airlock being open kind of sucks it out towards the the opening as well and she's able to i think she hooks onto something to, to keep herself from from going that far out i had forgotten that at first the alien just clings to the outside of the ship but she sees that and it crawls into the thrusters and then she turns the thrusters on which propels the alien out into um space and she is safe and she records her final log uh which in itself is also uh, iconic and that's how it ends and of course you know that was perfect because then it allowed for a sequel which came and was amazing and did incredibly well um and i loved it and and the franchise continued. It continued in video games. It continued in films. It continued in crossover films with Predator, uh, um, comic books, all kinds of things. And I certainly believe that it is alive and well. The third movie was really controversial. A lot of people hated it. And I understand why, because it, it kind of, um, ruined the happy ending of the second movie. Ultimately, I enjoyed the third movie. I thought it was very stylistic and interesting, and I liked it. So did I. I liked it. <laughs> I liked the fourth movie, too. <laughs> I liked the fourth one, too. The fourth one is very different, and they take it in a, a different direction, um, but I enjoyed it also. Um, I was really excited. Uh, I think his name is it Neil Blomkamp, uh, the guy... Yep. Yeah, he wrote a treatment that would kind of retcon the series and it would be more of a direct sequel to um, Aliens um, and would bring back the characters of Newt and the other guy who was revealed to be dead at the beginning of Alien 3. Um, and Sigourney Weaver was on board for that and I was really excited about it, but then Ridley Scott went ahead with Prometheus and so that was scrapped. And I have really mixed feelings about Ridley Scott's Prometheus trilogy. I've seen them both. I remember very little about either. I just didn't particularly care for them. Um, apparently, 
there is a script for Alien 5, which would see the return of Sigourney Weaver. I guess Ridley Scott is on board for it, but in interviews, Sigourney Weaver has been very skeptical and said maybe it's time to let Ellen Ripley rest. Um, she is in her 70s now, I believe. Early wow, 70s, I think. Um, maybe late 60s, I don't remember, but she's getting up there she's a vibrant woman she still works all the time and and she's fantastic um but i'm sure that it would be uh, a challenge for her with the physical demands i'm i'm confident that she could do it but whether or not she chooses to i don't know i don't know as a fan i'd love to see her return one more time and maybe get some closure to her story but uh if she doesn't i understand and respect that decision and i hope that we get um some good alien xenomorph movies moving forward because the alien versus predator movies are kind of fun popcorn movies but they're not great quality in terms of script and whatnot um it'd be good to see another really good alien movie but who knows i guess we'll have to wait and see yeah well uh, let's hope right i mean this movie has just spawned like you said a franchise that is live and well i mean i can't i can't name and number the number of video games i've played yeah, <laughs> that have directly stolen. I mean, this whole idea of the alien going through the vents, you know, I mean, how many times have we seen that in horror movies now? Right. Sci-fi movies. It's a trope, you know, now. It really started with this movie. And then so many connections to so many movies we've done and we, we will do. We already talked about all the people. We'd be remiss if we didn't point out that the person who designed the head of the alien and put all those special effects together was one of our favorite Italian special effects artists, Carlo Rambaldi. Mm -hmm. We just did um, Possession a little while ago uh, where he did the tentacled uh, rape creature in that one. Uh, And then, of course, he was doing E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and and had quite a relationship with Spielberg around this time. But again highly responsible for the effects in this movie. And I read that alien head, they put so much time and energy in it, it had about 900 points of articulation. Wow. Uh, And it's almost hard for me to believe because it doesn't seem like it. I mean, there's nothing that looks fake about this. I just, you don't see the head that much, (laughs) you know? But I was actually surprised this time around watching this movie how little blood there really is in it. Yeah, uh, I remembered it being gorier and bloodier, particularly that chest burster scene. It's really not that bloody at all. Not really. Even though we see like the aftermath of the blood splash on them, everything happens so fast that it did not match my memory, which I think just goes to show how much the implication of things and just showing you a little bit can help your mind to fill in the blanks with something that's much worse. But apparently they the whole movie was a bit bloodier all around. Uh, and Ridley Scott did have to trim back a number of the gore uh, scenes and blood in order to avoid getting an X rating at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I would be interested to see the the director's cut to, you know, the full blood version or something. I'd be curious right. to see what those effects were like, but uh, it definitely doesn't need it. The last thing that I think is worthy of mentioning um, is the score. I, I, I know there was some conflict about the score but what we end up with and i i particularly noticed it in the somewhat long opening credit sequence um the score is is beautiful oh and the sound design and the sound design jerry jerry goldsmith 
did the score. Yep. It's great, and it makes me nostalgic for the day when so much thought and effort, and, and I'm not saying that that's not the case in some films today, but it just seemed like score was something that was given more attention back in those days. Uh, and I appreciate it, as I always do when there's a strong score, because it just does so much to add to the atmosphere, and I, I really enjoyed it here as well. Yeah, and uh, and once again, Ian Holmes' performance, really great. Excellent. Clearly right, right. Comfortable in the middle of his game here. He has 137 credits to his name uh, before he passed away on June 19th of this year at age 88. You know, he's highly decorated. He's won tons of prestigious awards, film awards, Tony Awards. Um, he's a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, just universally respected and and considered one of the great actors of his time he's kind of a chameleon yeah just just an excellent excellent performer and by all accounts everything that i read i I only read glowing things about him as a performer and as a man and i guess we should you know we have him to thank for making us finally get around to this movie, which we probably should have done a long time ago. (laughs) So thank you, Mr. Holm. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Holm. Rest in peace. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can search us on Google, Two Guys in a Chainsaw, and you'll find our Facebook page and our page and our Twitter feed. Reach out to us on any one of those channels. Let us know what you thought of this episode and uh, give us some requests for some movie you'd like us to do in the future. Also, please be sure to visit our YouTube channel and uh, subscribe there. Ask your friends to subscribe to us so we can build our numbers there and find a wider audience on that medium as well. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Ah.